You're listening to audio from the Village Church, a community that's formed by the gospel and sent on God's mission, gathering weekly in the heart of downtown Hamilton, Ohio. For more information about the village or to connect with us, you can find us online at myvillagechurch.com. Hey, all, my name is Michael. I'm one of the pastors here at the village. Thanks so much for hanging out with us. Um, you guys ready for this? David and Matt, thanks for inviting us to just freaking give thanks, as he said. So um, I love that. That's good, Matt. Uh, I remember when I first became a Christian, I was 14 years old. And, uh, man, I come from a, like a, a good family. Um, I was a decent guy, uh, self-centered, I think, like most humans, but certainly those humans that are 13 or 14 years old. Um, and, and, and when it was that I responded to the message of the gospel and began to like figure out what it looked like for, for me to live my life with the Lord and with his people, I had a load of assumptions and misconceptions and, and things that were confusing and, and I brought arrogance to that and there were different voices that I was you know, just listening to and, and hearing, and that was like pre-internet, and so there are many more voices that are many, you know, much, much louder today, but there's a lot of stuff, um, and, and all the things that kind of weighed into that walk with God, and what it looked like, what I thought it looked like for me to walk with Him, uh, and, and maybe in simplicity, I thought like anything that claimed uh, Jesus, or that had like a Jesus fish on it, or like a WWJD bracelet, uh, look it up, kids. Um, anything like that, or anything that was like called Christian was good, and then like anything else was bad. Uh, that was kind of like the the lens that I put on. Like, okay, we're like I'm walking with the Lord, and like I have to do all these things, and like then the world around me can whatever. Um, that's that's not true. All right, that's that's not the way things are. And and I look back now and laugh, and and more often than laugh, maybe I like cringe at what I believed to be true, at what I expected from God, at what I thought he expected from me, and and just how it is or how it was that we worked together to know one another and to grow with one another uh, in a relationship, you know, um, me and the Lord. And I think about how I engaged or how I didn't engage with the world around me and with other Christians and with people who were in my life that were not Christians and, and with myself in light of who God was, and even the way that I engaged with God is just so different. And, and to be fair, some of the things that I hoped for were, were true, uh, some of the things that I hoped were true, they, they are true, right? Just simple truths of the faith, like Christ has died for my sin. That is good news, right? Um, but a lot of, of what I thought was, was a miss, and yet God continued pursuing me, and, and, and here we are, here we stand. I'm guessing that your God story, man, it, it might look similar to that, and I know all of our stories are different, but, but he, unwavering and steadfast faithfulness, mercy, grace, love, and justice for a long, long time. The funny thing about our walk with God and, and how we interact is that, that we so often begin with us at the center. 
That's what, I was, that's what I was doing when I was 14. I thought that all of this, and like I thought that, that the church and its existence hinged on me. And I thought that my relationship with, with God was all about me. And I was at the center of that story. And I was at the center maybe of, of the story of like the universe. It was all centered on me. And, and so when, when that happens, what we do is we read God into our story. Right? When we read the scripture, we, we put ourselves at the center and we invite God into our story. In the 15th and 16th century, uh, there, something similar was happening, but it was, it was cosmic in nature. Um, there was a, a battle waging, and uh, in, in, in like what was at stake in that was whether or not the earth was at the center of the universe. And most of you are like, yeah, it's probably not like, I, you know, like whatever the shape of the earth may be, right? Whatever you think that is today, um, like what we can probably agree upon that that the earth is not the center of the universe, that everything does not orbit around uh, the earth. But but that was a big deal. Not so long ago, just a few hundred years ago, that was that was a big deal. And so so for us, it's it's similar in our walk with the Lord. But as we grow in grace and knowledge of God, and as we grow in our understanding of the climactic moment in history where where Christ revealed Himself as the center of all that is, he, He's like the the ultimate decoder ring of all that God had laid out before. Then we begin to see that. That this isn't about us at the center, but it's about God. It's always been about God. Our covenant relationship, and that's what we're looking at today. Our covenant relationship with God has always been about God. And before we jump into the text, what this does, when we reorient ourselves, not at the center, but when God is at the center of our walk with Him, it does to us to walk with Him. Right? It absolutely liberates us to walk with him in joyful, guilt-free freedom that delights in God and delights in his ways because he has done what he will do. And if there is any pleasing God, it's already finished in the complete and ultimate work of Jesus who was the prototype for human faithfulness, obedience, righteousness, forgiveness, and all the things, right? And the second thing is it absolutely compels us to go hard in our devotion to him, to his people, and to his mission. That's what orienting our lives around God does for us. So let's see how this shakes out uh, as we continue. There are just three more sermons in this long journey that we've been traveling through Exodus, right? And so if you're doing the math, you're like, wow, there's like a lot more chapters than that. So we'll see what happens in the coming weeks. But uh, so let's see how this shakes out. Remember, uh, this story in Exodus is God rescuing his people um, and, and uh, bringing them from a place of captivity to freedom. He's rescuing us as a covenant community and God's family. The first thing that we see in this is, is this. When we, when we fail, God's mercy doesn't. Right? When we fail, God's mercy doesn't fail. And uh, what we see here, we'll, we'll pick up, I'll start reading in verse, uh, this is Exodus 34, verse 1, to just kind of set the context. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone, like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. 
it's kind of funny, right? Remember those? Like, I, we've already done this, and I gave you those, and remember you broke them? Like, the one, we're going to do this again. So he said, be ready by morning. Come up to the, the top of Mount Sinai. Present yourself there to me. Don't bring anybody else with you. No animals, no flocks, no herds, no other people. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning, and he went to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and he took in his hand two tablets of stone. So what we see here is, is Moses had done some stuff, and he had acted with a hard heart, and he had kind of lost his ever-loving mind at the hard-heartedness of the people. He broke uh, the tablets that God had given him. What we begin to see here is, is the Lord is reinstating the terms of his covenant, once again carving them literally in stone, right? Remember, Moses was enraged at the fickle faith flipping idolatry of, of his people. He broke the tablets that were written by God, and so God invites him. He's like, hey, I need you to reformat a Google Doc, and I need you to have it on my desk, right, at the top of the mountain, or, or maybe for you, paper types. He's like, college-ruled, perforated. I need you to bring the notebook to the top of the mountain, or for his context, he's like, two tablets, just like the others, bring them up. And so God is, is committing to reestablish the covenant way um, that his people ought to walk in for his glory and for their good. And even despite the fact that they've already forsaken the covenant, that they've already drifted away, that they've already made a golden calf to worship, that, that Moses has already broken the terms of the covenant. He, he ripped up the document, right? That, that's, what, that's what happened here. Even though he doesn't reduce the law, he doesn't make changes. He doesn't crack down even harder. He says what he said in his way, his design for his covenant people to love him and to love one another is, is just the same. So he's like, we're going to do this again. So Moses shows up. God comes down, which is humorous, all right? If you think about it, it's, it's the highest peak that they can see. Moses treks up and God, he, God, he comes down to him in a cloud of glory, and this is what happens. It says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there, and the Lord proclaimed the name of the Lord. Kind of a weird little thing there, right? I was at this preaching workshop like a month ago or a couple months back, and there was this guy, and his name's David Helm, and he wrote this little book on expositional preaching, right? So, David Helm literally wrote the book on expositional preaching. And David Helm was talking, and, and someone, I think, asked him a question, da, 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 what about this and whatever, and David Helm says this. Well, Helm says, and I was in the room like, that is really weird. Like, like he, he literally is the authority, or at least, you know, considered himself. <laughs> it was just a funny thing, but that's exactly what the Lord, the Lord comes down and, and it says, uh, and, and the Lord proclaims himself, right? He, pro he proclaimed the name of the Lord. He passed before him. God puts this monumental declaration. I don't know if it was done to a song, but you kind of have this idea that the Lord is like just walking with him, like snapping his fingers, da, 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 you know, like just like, and, and this is what he says. It's, this is the stuff that, that you put like tattoos of on your body, like, the Lord, the Lord, merciful, gracious, slow to anger, 
steadfast in love and faithfulness, keeping persistent love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and sin. What would that have meant to Moses? Moses messed up. The people, the whole story that God had been inviting them into, they, they had messed it up. Like, any chance that it hinged on, on Israel and their faithfulness, it, they mess it up every time, right? But by and large, and so, so God comes in. He doesn't obliterate Moses. He doesn't destroy them. He says, the Lord, the Lord, merciful, gracious, slow to anger, steadfast in love and in faithfulness, keeping persistent love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and sin. But then, then he goes on. And he, and he says, the Lord who won't clear the guilty. In fact, remembering sin for as long as its bloodline has swam in it. He is loving and he is just. And both of those things are true. They're not, they're not in any way contrary to one another. It's, it's like uh, when a boxer is in a fight and he gets stunned and the, the trainer opens the smelling salt and he like is suddenly like awakened, right? Like, oh my gosh. And, and so the Lord is just reminding him. He's recapturing clarity about who God is and about who his people are. And, and what we see is that our covenant relationship with God has always been about God. And God is reminding and he's restoring Moses' heart by reminding him not of who Moses is, but of who God is. And Moses is frustrated at the heart of the people. And, and he acted in anger and he broke God's design and his word. And, and God restores and he's putting his nature on display. And what we see in this is that when we fail and we do fail and we have failed and we will fail, God's mercy doesn't fail. And that's true for Moses. That's true for his people. That's true for us in this room. We will fail. God's mercy will never fail. And so I ask, like, do you remember that today? Do you remember that when you reflect on your past and you're drawn to, to guilt and you're drawn to shame? Do you remember this, that God's mercy doesn't fail? And you can make a shipwreck of your life, but you cannot make a shipwreck of God's mercy. It will prevail. And so suppose for, for a second, just with me, suppose that these things are true, that mercy and grace and, and this God that, that's full of patience and he's faithful and he's loving and he's persistent and he's forgiving of sin, yet he, he's not just willy-nilly clearing the guilty unjustly. He's not forgetting uh, sin against him or forgetting the sin against his people. Suppose you heard and you saw and you beheld these truths of God, how would you respond? See, God rides the balance of infinite love, yet not being taken for granted. He upholds grace, yet he cares for those who delight in justice. How does Moses respond? Well, I think he responds as, as, any, as, as any would who knew and who trusted and who treasured the weight of this truth. This is what he says in verses 8 and 9. This is Moses' response to the jingle that the Lord whispered. In song, right? And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and he worshiped. 
He bowed low. It's an act of humility. It's an act of exalting God, trusting his life to the hands of this good God. And in verse 9, and he said, If now, my God, I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. See, he presses God's nature, and he pleads for God's favor, and not only for himself, but for his people, this stiff-necked world around them. He pleads for them to be pardoned on account of God's rich mercy, not because they're great. What Moses doesn't do, he doesn't make excuses. He doesn't say, hey, can you like cut them some slack? Because like, you know how hard it is down there, and like it's hot, and they're hungry maybe, and you know when you're hangry and hot, like things... And you know the world around, and you know how easy, easy it is. And, and they, they went back to the patterns of their life, and yeah, that golden calf thing. But God, would you just, he doesn't say any of that. He says, we fail. We are hard-hearted, stiff-necked people. But God, rich in mercy, would you please restore us? Would you please, would you please give us what you said that you were going to give us? Would you please bring us back into your family and give us the inheritance? Would you take us for your inheritance? See, when we know God rightly, we submit to and we honor him with our minds and with our hearts and with our lives. And, and to behold, mercy doesn't bring boastful arrogance of doctrine that we get it all right or guilt-driven shame for our failures. It takes us right where we need to be, centered on the Lord, devoted, humble, thankful, worshiping with full hearts, pleading for our neighbor, God, that you might have mercy. God, is that how you approach God? Is that how you consider your neighbor who doesn't follow Jesus like you do? And just as the stiff-necked people have an intercessor in Moses pleading for God's mercy, how much more is our intercessor, Jesus, perfect in thought, perfect in motive, perfect in word, and in deed, pleading at the right hand of God in this very moment that we would not bear the wrath and justice of God because Christ has already done so on the cross. And upon that cross flows the limitless mercy for all who even now in this moment would worship with their whole lives this merciful God. So we see that when we fail, God's mercy doesn't. But then there's kind of this second movement. When, when God clears the path, we get to walk in his wake. Right? When God, when God clears the path, we get to walk in his wake. Um, in verse 10, and, and he said, Behold, I am making a covenant before all your people. Right? We've heard this before. He's done this before. I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation, and all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. See, God knows their patterns. He knows their hearts. He knows where they're drawn away. They know it because they've seen it on display. So he renews the covenant, but he does it with a warning. And this is what he says. He says, I will drive them out before you. All the people who are in the land that I'm, I'm taking you into, all of the ites, 
right? Uh, the the uh, Hittites and Parasites and uh, Canaanites and, and all of these people. I will, I will drive them out before you. And those who stand against me and my plans and my promises and my people, they will be wiped aside. I will do that. I don't know if you've ever been water skiing or, or tubing or anything like that, but um, you, you're safest in the wake of the boat. And, and what happens is uh, the boat kind of, it literally paves a path in the water. And, and because you are tethered to the boat, you follow along in the wake where the boat, it kind of cuts down the roughness of the water all around. Just this past week, Friday, uh, we went out with the shorts and the jewels and we were uh, hanging out. And, and this is like very true. Ireland and Evie, they're on a tube and, um, and they're like, uh, in, inside the wake, they're like, like standing on Ireland's back, and they're like, uh, Ireland's giving her a massage, like on the tube. We're going like, you know, 30 knots per hour, you know? Just kidding. I don't know what a knot is. Uh, we're like going some amount of speed in one particular direction on the water, right? Uh, and it's choppy all around. You, me, they're not doing no pyramid on the outside of the wake, because what's about to happen is they're about to get popped up and shot off of the thing. Real simple, Right. Certainly there's an analogy breakdown because the goal of skiing or tubing is to have fun. And so you want to be outside the wake and whatever. That's kind of the danger zone. The goal of life is, is not to put yourself in dangerous situations. The goal of life is nearness to God. And that means that we desire to be, and not only in the wake, but I want to be like in the boat. In my walk with him. And the analogy also breaks down because I know that there are a lot of C.S. Lewis fans and as Mr. Brewer says of Aslan the lion, who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And the reason why it's not necessarily that our goal to be with God is just safe because he will take you places that you would never take yourself. But he's the king and he's good, I tell you. So we are, as we sang, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. That's the people that we've been reading about. And you can look at that judgmentally and you say, wow, man, Israel, they really, or you can look at your own life and say, gosh, how much do I sit with these people in the pages that I read? I am prone to wander. So he says to them, follow me and I will lead. But because of your hearts, heed this warning like a good dad. Hey, uh, son or daughter, when you, when, you, when you grow up and you have to deal with things, you're going you're gonna to deal with things that come against you. And, and like a good parent, they begin to know their children. And they begin to protect their children and, and, and guard them and have side conversations and, and conversations in the car about real things that they know that their children are going to like kind of gravitate towards outside of the wake of God's path. God, a good dad. And this is what he says. And I'm just going to kind of blaze through these. Observe what I command you. Take care lest you make a covenant with the world. That's what he's saying. I'm, I'm blazing the trail. But stay near to me and do these things because if you don't, you, you will be drawn to make a covenant not with me, but with the world. And he says, tear down the altars. Right? Tear down the pillars, the goddess and, and, and the cult symbols and the, and the totems and all these things that, that you're drawn to. Lest you join their whoring and join their families and marriages and spiritual adultery and idolatry. 
And he goes on, he says, make no metal gods to worship. Why would, they'd be like, oh, I know, uh, we know. Yeah, if you knew, you wouldn't have done it like 15 minutes ago. Don't do this. I mean, the place that I'm bringing you, do not continue in the sin of your past. And he goes on and, and he says, keep the feast of the unleavened bread. And I know we read that. And, and David's reading the focal passage and you're like, wow, this is a lot. But what he's saying is, re- remember the things that I've put in place to help you remember what I've done for you. Remember the feast. Remember Passover, when you sprinkled the blood and it was only by your faith that the angel of death passed over you. And for us, man, remember the cross. And, and as often as we do share this meal, that we remember what God has already done for us. And he goes on, he says, give me your best offerings. And he goes on, he says, keep the Sabbath, right? In the place, that, in the path that I'm paving for you, you're gonna be drawn outside of my wake. Do these things, keep the Sabbath, maintain proper dependence on me and, and let that be visible in the, in the rhythm of your work and the rhythm of your rest. And then he says, Moses, write it down. Right? Write these things down so that you might remember them and so that you might lead our people to remember them. <clears throat> and, and so he's up there 40 days and he wrote this stuff. Right? When, when God clears a path, and that's how this whole thing starts, he invites us to walk in his wake. And because our hearts are indeed prone to wander, we have a part to play in, in purity of genuine worship. And so God... God points to particular kind of practical patterns to help us walk where God leads. Remember, he says, take care lest you covenant the world, all right? And so there are two things that I, I, I think if we could kind of simplify all of those things, it looks like this. Wage war against the sin in your heart. Look at the patterns of your life. Right? And that's all God's doing. He's just reminding them of where they have strayed in the past, of where they have forgotten who he, he is, uh, of, of where they have been drawn, drawn to, to um, worship false gods and idols made with their hands. And so what we get to do is we get to know where we are drawn away, and we get to remove the seed of temptation. See, here's the thing. God is not concerned with a false god that's made of metal. God doesn't like quiver. He's not, he's not nervous about that. But he knows their hearts are drawn to delight in those things more than God himself. Right? And, and we also know in the way that this is, Israel is a, a nation built around the Lord. The United States, uh, July 4th or not, right, is not a nation built ar- ar- around God. And so this looks quite looks quite different in the way that this shows up as a community. But one thing is for sure is what we get to do is we get to ask God to search our own hearts. And we get to invite him to, to, to let us dash the things around us that draw our hearts away. Remember, the things are not the problem. So for you, it might be like entertainment, right? Real simple, low-hanging fruit of our walk with the Lord. Gosh, you're just so drawn to entertainment and, and you're consumed by all of the things out there. And you spend no time with the Lord. So what does it look like for you to reorient and to dash some of those heart idols? 
Or, or maybe it's, it's social media, and, and we had a conversation last night with a family, and, and I, I am at a point in my life where I can scroll through whatever feed it is, and I can hear the dumbest things you've ever heard in your entire life, and some of them by people in this room. And, I, and you know what? I don't throw, I'm not drawn to throw. I'm, I, can, I can just, I, I can either laugh or think, oh, God, it's job security. But, but maybe you can't do that. And I hear all the time, and it's not a bad thing when people are like, okay, I'm, I'm dipping out. Uh, later, Facebook, see you in six months. Like, it's fine. Right? Know what your heart latches onto that's outside of the path that God is leading you into. Right? And it can be a, a million things. Idle time or, or certain people that when I'm around them, I just whatever. And, or maybe it's like real practically substance abuse, addiction stuff. You can't be in certain, like all those things are true. And that's not legalism, people, because Jesus is the one who said, ah, your hand caused you to sin. He didn't say like, well, tie it around your back until, he said, just cut the thing off. And your eye caused you to sin, just pluck it out. That's the serious nature of God waging war against the sin in our heart. And the second thing is, remember what's done, good, and true. And so he says, remember the feast, and why you take that feast. Remember communion as, as we get to do today. We get to remember and declare what's already been done, what's good and what's true. Remember the feast. Remember the Sabbath. Remember my word. These are the basic means of, of grace which God uses to remind his people of what's done and what's good and what's true. So we get to delight in communion and we get to find regular moments and days and seasons to rest in God and what is good. We get to trust his provision to us outside of the work of our hands. We get to listen to what's been written, assuring you no matter how you feel on whatever day of who God is, what he's done, and who you are because of what he's done, that we might walk in his ways. Our covenant relationship with God, it's always been about him, and he knows us so well that he paves the way, he is the way, he is the truth, he is the life, and he warns us to be alert, to remove the things which distract our heart's devotion. Observe what I command you. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the world. And the last thing is this. When we are with God, people take notice. I want to read this, the last few verses, um, starting in verse 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. I think this is different when, like, you have that baby glow about you, right? This is, like, literally his head, like, is, like, glowing. Like, it's the Rudolph stuff, Right? Um, and the parallels continue because they like cover it up and he probably talks funny, right? Um, so, so it says, Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses and behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. My God, son. Like, or, or that's a blinking, blinking beaker, right? What does he say? <laughs> What's Dancer Dasher say? He says something like that. 
Uh, you just wait, all right? When you're watching Rudolph, you're going to be like, gosh, this, I'm reminded of the Exodus. This is so great. Um, so so, so they, they're like, what is happening? You spend time with God, you come down, your head glows. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with him, he put a veil over his face. He covered it up. Whenever Moses went in to be with the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. That is so weird. A couple weeks back, Kim and I were in Beaver Creek, Colorado for uh, Acts 29, lead pastors and wives retreat, and it was sweet. Um, what a gift um, that, that that network is to us um, and just very real relational ways and, and support in lots of ways. And, and what a gift you all are um, that we get to do that. Uh, and so thanks for that and thanks for, um, man, Everyone picking up slack when I'm not around here, and, and certainly Matt and, and Scott and even Adam this past week. So what a gift that is. But, but the beauty of a room like that where people are, are singing and clinging and, and they're, they're pouring their, their hearts out and they're praying and they're depending and they're hoping and they're longing and they're, and they're building all of the things of God, right? Um, so we're sitting there in a room and it's bigger than this one and there are, you know, hundreds of, of lead pastors and wives and, and we're singing, heartfelt, whatever. And I encourage you, gosh, I want to be a church that sings loudly. Right, Matt? Matt, we talk about this in staff meeting and stuff like, man, like, what was the vibe of the people in the room? Gosh, I, I want us to be a church that boldly just sings out, right? When, when these great bands in the room, and I see these two people, elderly people, they come in, and, and the door that they come in is like literally in the front of the room. It's like, it would be like someone coming in over there, and they just stood there for like three songs, and they look like they were getting ready to lead a safari. I mean, we're in Colorado, I know, but like the little guy on the Price is Right who like does the thing, like the cliffhanger guy, and he falls off, like they look like that, like Steve Irwin, hat on, like khaki vest, like, like boots with the socks pulled up and the hiking stick, both of them. The cutest thing you've ever seen. And my thought was, I don't think that they're in Acts 29. That was my thought. And they just stood there and they talked and they, they're facing us, right? And I'm standing like over there and, and they just stood there. And I, I just was distracted in a good way by them. And I thought, I know what's happening here, right? These people are like in the hotel that we're in and they hear these people resounding Christ, our all in all voices raised and I imagine they were surprised and it probably sounded like, hey, you know, they're drinking their coffee and which hike do you want to take today? And, and then it was like, do you hear that? Honey, honey, do you hear that? Right? And they were probably like walk down a hallway and double doors and like, you got to be bold because they were just like, here I am. <laughs> They're like, wow, this is incredible. And then they just stayed there. They weren't like, oh, gosh, we, they just stayed there. And they just delight in their eyes and delight in their hearts. And I'm like looking at them like, I should go talk to them. And, right? 
finally some other guy that was near them kind of approached them, and, and, and I just watched the conversation. I imagine he said, hey, we're a bunch of pastors and our wives hanging out, and they're like, and they just kept doing this. Like, I don't know what they're saying, but you would imagine it was like, we heard you singing, and our hearts are full. And so I sang, and like I felt tears in my eyes, and I thought about the work of God and the intrigue of his people, unified, giving God his due praise and glory, and the collection of his saints drawing attention to him by our devotion and song. Like, here's the thing. We don't have to live lives around a stage with a band singing with the pastor of God, his glory. We can live our lives and we can work our work and we can walk in solitude and, and when we have fun and when we're waiting and when we're suffering and when we're journeying through unknowns and, and unwanteds and all the highs and all the lows and all of the in-between with the glory of God in sight and with his glory on display in and through us. The point of this, Moses is restored as the voice of God to his people. This, I, I think this would be similar to the, the miracles that God allowed the apostles to do in, in abundance in the New Testament. Why? So that, so that the people of God would say, no, these people speak on the behalf of God. And, and it's the same thing as we open this book. This is our authority. But So, so he, he restored Moses, but then I want you to check this out. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and if we can't, just we're doing something wrong. So we're going to hang out here just for a couple more minutes. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. When you're reading your Bible and you see like the little reference there, like, man, open that up. Or when you see something really weird, like the dude's face glowed and there's references, like, look, and sometimes there's New Testament commentary on what happened in the Old Testament. And here we see this, and it brings us right into the glory of God. And so I, I just want to take a minute to do this. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm going to start in verse 3. And remember, he's writing a letter to the people at Corinth. They had sent them there, and, and Paul had not been able to be with them for some time. And this is what he says. And there's so much here that we can't hit on. but And, and you... And he says, and you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. He said, you are the letter from God. And then he says, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. So I think of 14-year-old me. Confident in my righteousness. And if I didn't have that, then me and God had nothing. And this just obliterates that lie. And he goes on, he says, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us. Because it's not about us. But our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. That's the covenant of grace through Christ, not the covenant of law through Moses. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. What he's saying is the law is not bad. 
But the law shows us where we fail. And when we fail, the penalty is death. He's contrasting being under the law and being under grace in Christ in the new covenant. Now, if the ministry of death, now, if the ministry of death carved in letters of stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, that's the old covenant coming to an end in Christ, will not the, mystery, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, that's that we are condemned because we break the law, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it and glory. That is what Christ has given us. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. That is the new covenant that is ours in Christ. Since we have such hope, we have such hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened for to this day when they read the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. He's talking about those Jews who have not believed upon Christ as the, the one that brings them into the new covenant. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. The veil that, that a life with God begins with them. That's the veil. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from, from your disciplines, prayer life, Bible reading, generosity, giving, stewardship. No. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. To, when God's people are with Him, people notice. So the emphasis on, on Moses or on us walking in this glory that's greater than Moses, that comes from the Spirit, the emphasis isn't on us glowing. It's not on us being noticed. It isn't on our worship or our worship style or our ability to carry out righteous deeds. The emphasis is on us being with God, and when that happens, His glory shines bright. God is the one who comes to us so that we might be with Him and reflect His glory wherever we go. So, whatever you think it is to follow Jesus, if it starts with you, it's on shaky ground. It does not start with you, but when you remember that it's always been about God turning to you first, Christ's obedience in your place first, Christ's death in your place first, Christ's resurrection to give you life 
first and Jesus sending his Holy Spirit to let you live a life of glory in your devotion and obedience and love and his glory. And he awakens us that we might respond and turn to the Lord. Then we walk in sure steps. And when that happens, we get, to, we get to acknowledge that when we fail, God's mercy doesn't fail. And we get to acknowledge that when God clears the path, we get to walk in his wake. And we get to acknowledge that when we are with God, people notice. The band can come up. Just as, as that scientific struggle I talked about in the 15th and 16th century and it waged war within the church and within the culture. Lots of things it was just to say that everything revolves around the sun in a solar system. In the same way, that came at a cost. Hundreds of years of battle. Right? In, in the same way, we battle to reorient our lives, our hope, our joy, our covenant relationship with God being all about him. And you are going to be drawn to think that it's about you. You're going to be drawn to think it's about what you offer and how you contribute. Right? And every time you do, you are undermining the fabric of the covenant. The covenant is that God is faithful. So today, my prayer for us is that we walk with God. And, and as we do that, we reorient that, that walk from one that, that has us and our glory and the glory of the law at the center to one where God and his glory uh, of, of Christ and the spirit. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. We get to respond. We get to sing right where you are, sit or stand. You get to pray over there by yourself or that tree back there. Someone would love to pray with you. We get to respond for those who are in Christ by remembering and declaring Christ's death, life, and resurrection for us by taking communion. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your gift. Thank you that we get to be your people. And God, would you just remind us today that in you restoring your covenant with us, and you did that not only by reestablishing tablets that are written on stone, but by your spirit, you awaken us to understand and, and to know and to behold and to treasure Christ above all. God, would you let us walk in your ways? Would you let us delight in you all of our days? We love you and we need you. In Jesus' name, amen.